My name is Ben Clawson. If we haven't crossed paths on a Sunday, I am not the typical teacher here, but I am a typical teacher here, kind of. I like to sub in for Matt when he likes to go off and get a doctorate, so that's what he's doing right now. He'll be back next week, don't worry. Um, but I'm typically uh, leading the college ministry. I'm the college minister here at Creekside, so that means my entire job is to help college students like walk with Jesus, love Jesus more deeply. So if you happen to be a college student and you're interested in my services, <laughs> which are helping you walk with Jesus, I would love to meet you and, and grab you, get you a coffee and um, get to know you better and see how I can help. But today, what we're gonna do is start by reading 1 Peter chapter five. So if you've got a copy of your scriptures, flip on over to 1 Peter with me and we're gonna start there. It's toward the back of your Bible. You got Hebrews, then you got James, and then you got 1 Peter. And we're going to start there in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. They read like this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the right time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, because he cares for you. Thesis for the morning. I believe that there are a couple of things that every single one of us desire. A couple of things that if we were to peel back the layers of like sin that tends to clog our heart and, and realize what are the things that at our most base spiritual, God-ordained level, our hearts all desire, I believe there would be a couple of common things. I think we all desire a deep, intimate, real relationship with God. I think every single one of us desires that. I think we desire unity and harmony with the body of believers, so with one another and with people outside of the church even. I think we desire unity. I think we desire to live our lives how God wants us to live our lives, not how we want to live our lives, right? I think we really do desire that deep down. And I think one day we want to get to heaven. And in heaven, I think we want to hear the Father not say, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? But rather hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. I think those are, if we're honest, the deepest desires of our heart. Are they always our strongest desires? No. A lot of times we want ourselves. We want self-exaltation. We want things for ourselves, but in reality, those are our deepest desires. And if we can agree on those things, then I think what our, scriptures, our scripture is going to show us today, that one of, or possibly even the greatest barrier to those goals being lived realities, to those desires coming to pass, is known as pride. It's known as pride. Pride is the attitude of me over you. Pride is the attitude of I think of myself, I desire myself, I prioritize myself over other people. And let's call pride what it is. Pride is a parasite. Pride is a parasite. What parasites do is they latch on to vital organs. And you know what they do? They suck life. They drain life from your bones. They kill. Parasites rob you. And pride is... Exactly like that. Pride robs us of what we desire. Pride robs us of unity and relationship with God, with one another. Pride robs us of contentment in our current place. Pride robs us of all sorts of things. And if I'm honest, I'm a, I'm a great case study of this. I have pride lodged deeply within my own heart. Uh, 
And I feel comfortable confessing that because I, I know you do too, right? <laughs> I know all of us have pride deep within our hearts, but I've seen it all throughout my story. I remember, for example, I in high school started to feel the call into ministry for the first time in my life. And at the same time that I was feeling this call to ministry, I was attending this little Methodist church in Baytown, Texas. And at this church, um, I, I, at the same time that I was attending this church, feeling the call to ministry, but also had started to discover like uh, big name pastors who gave these amazing, hilarious sermons that I just loved and was listening to these podcasts. I was listening to worship music by Hillsong and all these amazing, you know, bands. And I, what I started to do during these worship services was compare what I was hearing in my Methodist church to what I knew was possible. And I started to think in my mind, if I were in charge, I would not have given that sermon like that. If I were in charge, that is not how the worship would have sounded. If I were in charge, that is not the order of the service. And I started to sit there and rather than taking in what God had for me, I was sitting in my pride and judging and saying, if I were in charge, if I were in charge, if I were in charge. And that's a perfect example because what did pride rob me of in that moment? How about worship? (laughs) How about learning from God's word? How about camaraderie with the body of believers gathered together? Pride robbed me of so much and pride robs all of us of so very much because it's a parasite. And pride has been doing this since you know when? Since the garden. What was the very first temptation that the serpent delivered to Adam and Eve? If you eat of the tree, you'll be like God. You'll be like God. That is pride. I want to be God. I don't want God to be God. I want that role. It's been infecting us since the garden, and it's infected every single one of us, and it has great potential to dampen your faith and cause you to miss out on the life that God wants for you. So the question that I want to ask today is, does God's word provide us with any hope or are we doomed to be people who are inward focused, self-exalting, focused on the things that we want rather than what other people want? And the answer, of course, is no. Of course, the scriptures, the relief that they bring to us today is that the scriptures show us that there is another path. There's another path, another way possible that helps kill the parasite that pride is kill the parasite that pride is. So what we're going to do today is we're just going to see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, two steps that every single one of us needs to take if we desire to kill the parasite that pride is. If you want to kill your pride and experience intimacy with the Lord, with other believers, and hear, well done, good and faithful servant, then the scriptures are going to teach us today how to kill our pride, how to kill our pride. And I, I know what you're maybe thinking. Uh, isn't this a talk on Proverbs? And uh, well, yeah, we're going to talk about the Proverbs, but as this series should aptly be titled, uh, this is a talk on Proverbs, kind of. Um, so 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, is going to give us two steps we need to take if we want to kill our pride. If we want to kill our pride. I started heavy because I think, it's, I think it's worth it with this topic. And I think it's important. And I think if we really do listen up to what, what the Holy Spirit has for us today in his word, I think it's actually possible that the transformation is the result. So 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. Um, before we talk about that, I want to provide you with a little bit of context on 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, namely, were written by the Apostle Peter to a group of scattered, persecuted believers. 
And if you remember who Peter was, he was an apostle of Jesus who, let's just say, like, had a little pride issue himself, right? Peter was that guy who, uh, you know, like, shot from the hip. He was a a shoot first, aim second, and, like, talk first, think second kind of guy. He was the guy who, like, if you think about the story of Peter walking on the water, that, like, that I think there's a little bit of pride in that story, right? Because Peter was the disciple who saw Jesus walking on the tumultuous waves, sizes up the storm. He's like, I think I could pull that off. <laughs> I've always thought that's funny. He's like, yeah, I could, I, could, I could probably do that. Oh my gosh. He's the guy who, if you think about it, he, he called Jesus out for saying he was going to be arrested and killed. He said, no, you're not. Jesus was like, Are, you're calling me out right now? He was the guy who, when like a hundred people came to arrest Jesus, he starts swinging and cuts that guy's ear off. That's Peter. Peter was very much a man who had pride deep in his heart but he was also the man that was deeply humbled, right? You know Peter's story? You remember what happened when the rubber hit the road? When Peter had an opportunity to be faithful to Jesus or to deny Jesus, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. It's one of the stories that we know Peter most famous for. He denied Jesus three times. He fled the scene of Jesus' crucifixion. And you know what he was left with after that moment? Shame and guilt. Peter did what a lot of us do when we fall into some sin or we, or we deny Jesus in some way. He went back to what was familiar to him. What was Peter doing when we get a glimpse of him after Jesus had died? He's fishing. He's a fisherman. He's back out there fishing, sitting and wallowing in his shame. But he's also the man that Jesus met on the shore and made the same kind of fire that he had denied Jesus over the first time. And over that fire, he says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And just like that, the shame that had held Peter down was replaced by grace, the grace of Jesus. Peter was a man who was prideful, who was humbled, and then who tasted the sweetness of the forgiveness and grace of Jesus. And that makes Peter a pretty qualified author to write on the subject, right? Peter, friend of Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says these two things are necessary if we want to kill our pride. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The first step that all of us need to take if we desire to kill the pride that lives within us is clothe ourselves with humility. Clothe yourself with humility. Now, look at the first word that it uses here. It says, clothe yourselves. That's actually one word in the Greek. And I'm taking Greek classes, and I don't intend for them to be for nothing. So we're going to geek out on the Greek here for a minute, if you're cool with that. So first thing about this verb that's used here, it's actually in the middle voice. Now, I know no one needs me to jog your memory on how grammar works, but there's the active, middle, and passive voice. The active voice is when the subject performs the action of the verb, right? The boy hit the ball. The passive voice is when the subject receives the action of the verb, the, the, the ball hit the boy. There you go. And then the middle voice is kind of right in the middle. So the subject both performs and receives the action of the verb. The boy hit himself with the ball. So he acted on it and received it. Why am I telling you this? Because what it's getting at here is something in the middle voice is required. We're talking about something that you have to do to yourself. Something that you have to do to yourself. He's not saying clothe other people with humility or be clothed by just being alive with humility. He's saying you've got to go out and clothe yourself with humility. He's charging you to something right here. 
And then second, the, the word that's used here is this Greek word. It's not a pretty Greek word. And in fact, this is the only time in the scriptures that it's used, probably because it's not a very pretty word. It's eg kombasaste. How about that? Eg kombasaste. And, and it literally means to, to tie something onto yourself or to put something on yourself or clothe yourself. In the ancient literature, this is the only time it's used in the scriptures, but in other ancient literature, it's used to denote a slave's apron that a slave would tie on themselves to be ready for service. Isn't that interesting? The word that he used here for clothe yourself already denotes clothing yourself in some form of service, in some form of service. And this is really significant because your clothes say a lot about who you are and how you function, right? Your clothes say a lot about who you are and how you function. If you were to be out in public and you ran into this guy, what would you guess his career is? It's pretty easy. Probably a chef. That's right. (laughs) If you were to run into this woman, what would you think her career is? She's probably a doctor. The stethoscope is a dead giveaway. You run into these guys out in public. What do you think they're doing? They're probably the Creekside parking team. And, uh, you know, or maybe construction workers. Um, But seriously, your clothing says a lot about who you are. Your clothes say a lot about who you are. Basically, when you meet a person, what's one of the first things that you see other than their face? Their shirt. What kind of shirt are they wearing? What kind of shoes are they wearing? What are they clothed with? And what's he saying right here that Christians are to be clothed with? The first thing that you notice when you see a Christian, the shirt that they're wearing? Humility. The thing that is to embody Christians, the one shirt that they are to put on is the shirt, the clothing, the garment of humility. Put on humility. This is really interesting because it's really easy to tell when someone has clothed themselves with pride, right? You ever seen someone that you're like, you, you're, every garment you're wearing is pride right now. Pride looks like never having time for you. Pride looks like that conversation where the other person only ever talks about themselves and never asks about you. Pride looks like someone who can't make eye contact. Pride looks like never even engaging with you at all. It's easy to see if someone has clothed themselves in pride. But humility? What's it look like to clothe yourself with humility? I think the next couple of words in this verse actually give us a great definition of what it looks like for Christians to be clothed with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. What sort of humility? Humility toward one another. Humility toward one another. I think the theologian Wayne Grudem in his um, commentary on this passage describes what's happening here really well. It says, the term humility speaks of an attitude which puts others first, which thinks of the desires, needs, and ideas of others as more worthy of attention than one's own. It's essentially the mindset of saying first, what do they need? And then second, what do I want? Of putting their desires, someone else's needs, above my own. That's what humility is. And if you need an example, a case study of humility, look no further than God in flesh. Look no further than the incarnate Jesus, right? He is the perfect example, the embodiment of humility. I love that there's one time in the scriptures, the book Gentle and Lowly pointed this out to me. There's one time in the scriptures that Jesus says, this is what my heart, my cardia, the core of who I am is like. He describes himself like this in Matthew eleven twenty nine, For I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm gentle and humble in heart. What marks Jesus more than anything else is his humility. There was a pastor in the late 1800s known as Andrew Murray in South Africa. And he wrote what is to this day the best-selling Christian book on humility in all of human history. 
best-selling Christian book on, on humility. And when he describes, or he takes the question, when we look at Jesus, what should he be, what's he clothed with? What is the one thing, the one standout characteristic of Jesus? He says this about Jesus. It's a long quote, but stick with me. It's a great quote. There can be but one answer. It is his humility. What is the incarnation but his heavenly humility? His emptying himself and becoming a man. What's his life on earth but humility? His taking the form of a servant. And what's his atonement but humility? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And what is his ascension and his glory but humility exalted to the throne and crowned with glory? He humbled himself and therefore God highly exalted him. In heaven where he was with the Father, in his birth, in his life, in his death, and his sitting on the throne, it is all, it is nothing but humility. Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature, the eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in a garb of meekness and gentleness to win and serve and save us. As the love and condescension of God makes him the benefactor and helper and servant of all, so Jesus of necessity was the incarnate humility. And so he is still in the midst of the throne, the meek and lowly lamb of God. Need an example? Look no further than God incarnate, God in flesh, God born as a baby, God born in a manger, God washing dirty feet, God dying on a rugged cross, and God rising and ascending to glory. Look no further than the incarnate Jesus. I love that when we clothe ourselves with humility, we're just clothing ourselves with Christ. The goal is never become more humble. The goal is become like Jesus. And what is Jesus? At his fullest, his most true sense, he is humility embodied. Humility embodied. And I also love that when we do this, when we clothe ourselves with humility, we're not stepping into a trap that the enemy lays for us of actually becoming opposed to God. Opposed to God. Look what these next couple, of, or the end of this verse says. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, what's it mean to be opposed to God? I don't really know. No one really knows, but it sure doesn't sound good to be opposed to God, to be living your life in a way that God is actually opposed to. That's a really dangerous thing. And what's happening here is he's actually quoting Proverbs 3.34. And this is a big idea that Proverbs picks up and runs with tons and tons of times. So look at a couple of Proverbs with me uh, here in this sermon that's on Proverbs. There you go. Uh, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride and the evil way. God hates arrogant pride. He hates arrogant pride. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. And then finally, Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. See what he's saying here? This is, this is some really strong language. Really strong language. God is opposed to and in fact hates when we're prideful. When we choose our own desires over someone else's. When we insist on our own way. When we think I am for some reason better than that person over there. God hates that. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't hate the prideful person. He hates the pride that lives within the prideful person because it's a parasite. It's the opposite of who he is. It's the exact opposite of who he is. I like the way that Wayne Grudem describes why God feels this way again. He says this, 
Why does God act this way? Apparently because the proud trust in themselves, while the humble trust in God, and God delights in being trusted. Moreover, the proud seek glory for themselves, while the humble seek to give glory to God, and glory rightfully belongs to God, not us. Do you see the the argument that he's kind of making here? He's saying that when you are prideful, when you elevate yourself over other people, you are functioning as your own God. You're functioning as your own God. And when you function as your own God, listen, only one person can have that role. There's only one God, and it can't be you and him. And he's saying what you're doing, what every single one of us is doing when we're prideful is we're robbing God of his role. We're taking it on ourselves. God's got the role of God well under control. But he's saying that what we're doing when we do that is we are aligning ourselves against God. God opposes the proud, but God also gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. If you think about the uh, Christian gospel, the, the core foundation of what we believe here at Grace and as Christians, it's essentially humility. The gospel is in and of itself humility. Because a lot of us think sometimes that it's a popular sentiment of the world that as long as when I meet my end, head to heaven, stand before God, as long as I am more good than bad, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll stand before God and I'll say, look, I did more good than bad. Isn't that good? But in reality, the scriptures teach us that that's not the way that it is at all. In fact, every single one of us is far more bad than good. And in fact, if you want to be good enough for heaven, you've got to be all good. You've got to be all good. No bad. There can't be an ounce of bad in your life. One sin ever if you want to earn your own way into heaven. And in fact, that doesn't exist in any, any one of us in this room. And, and to make matters even worse, Romans teaches us that the wages of sin is death. The payoff for our sin, for one sin ever, is that we have deserved, we've earned death. And that is why we need Jesus so terribly bad. Because you know what Jesus was? All good, no bad. Jesus was all good, no bad. He never sinned in his life. He was perfect. And because he was perfect, he was able to take the punishment, the the wages that we deserve, that we earned, death on himself on the cross. And he was able to pay for our sin, pay for our sin with his blood, and then rise again three days later and defeat sin, defeat death. So that if we can allow ourselves to be humble enough to admit, I can't, but someone else can, we can gain salvation by faith through grace, by simply believing Jesus died for my sin and he was good enough and I never could be. That's how we obtain salvation. That is the way in which God gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble in salvation, in salvation. So the question that I I just want to leave you with based on this passage or not leave you with, we're only halfway through the passage, but ask you right now is, are you clothed with humility? Are you clothed with humility? Could your words be described as humble? Could your actions, your possessions be described as humble? Could your spouse rightly describe you as humble? Could your kids accurately describe you as humble? Could your friends accurately describe you as humble? Could your coworkers or employees or your boss describe you as humble? Could a stranger that you meet out in public describe you as humble or as pride clinging to yourself? When people look at you, do they see pride or do they see humility? Let me give you a really hard application today. (laughs) Ask someone. The simple application is, would you this week just ask someone? Say, hey, someone you trust, 
someone that you desire deep within you to show humility towards, someone who you really know God wants me to elevate their interests, their needs above my own, what if you just asked him this week, hey, what is one way that I could be a little bit more humble? I could elevate your desires above my own. How could I do that? Can you just give me one practical way? Do you think God would be glorified if he saw our kids, his kids doing that with everyone this week? If he saw us going to one another and asking, hey, what's one more way that I can elevate your interests above my own? I think so. I think he would. I think he would. The first step that we need to take if we want to kill our pride is to clothe ourselves with humility. Clothe ourselves with humility. Look how this passage goes on to give us the second reason. Humble yourselves, verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The second thing that we need to do to kill our pride is clothe ourselves with humility, yes, but cast all of our anxieties on the Lord. Cast our anxieties on him. That's sort of the how, but before we get into the how that he describes here, he also gives us another why. Why do we need to clothe ourselves with humility? Look what he says. Because humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. He may exalt you. See what he's saying here, the the interesting little argument that he's making here? It's actually that humility leads to exaltation. Humiliation leads to exaltation. I love how ironic this is, because what does the prideful person seek? Their own exaltation. And you know what they never ultimately get in God's economy? their own exaltation. Look how Proverbs goes into this again and again and again. Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is instruction and wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 22, four, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I love that it gets at again and again and again. If you want to gain honor, gain exaltation in the sight of the Lord. And by exaltation, we're not talking about an earthly exaltation, like a name that everyone knows or a big house or lots of money. We're talking about eternal sort of exaltation, getting to rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. If you want that sort of exaltation, he says humility is the path. I love how Jesus picks this up and says, that's absolutely right. Matthew 23, 11, and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Love the way that Jesus says that. And then says it again in Luke 18, 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then I love this story from Jesus in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. This story comes at the end of a time that Jesus caught his disciples debating amongst one another um, who was the greatest, which of them was the greatest. Can you imagine having that debate with your friend group? It's, It's a weird thing to debate in the first place. They're all talking about which of us is the greatest, which of us will be the greatest. And Jesus says this to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever, whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The point is that it's humility, humiliation, that ultimately leads to exaltation, that leads to greatness. So that's the reason why we're supposed to humble ourselves, because if we want to hear that, well done, good and faithful servant, and not be robbed of that, 
It's not the path of pride, but the path of humility that we must take. That's why, and now he's going to explain again how, by casting your anxieties on him. Look back at this verse. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. What we have to do is cast our anxieties on him. Now, the, the question that I feel like this passage sort of raises is, well, what do pride and anxiety have to do with one another? What's the, what, what's the mix or why, why is he talking about anxieties all of a sudden? And before you um, reach under your chair and grab the stone that you brought with you to, to start throwing up at me, um, let me confess to you guys that, that I struggle with anxiety all the time. Before I tell you what I think this passage is getting at, I, I confess to you that I struggle with anxiety. I get worried all the time. Are the things in my life going to work out? Is everything going to be okay down the road? I struggle with this all the time. But I think what he's saying here, what the passage is getting at, is that pride, or sorry, anxiety is often a, simple, a symptom of pride. Anxiety is often a symptom of pride. Now, I say often, not always, because sometimes anxiety is a medical disorder that needs to be treated. But I think often, anxiety can be a symptom of pride. Why? Because it's, it's the same story as we were telling earlier. A lot of times, you're worried because you think you are in charge of the world. You think, if I don't get my to-do list done, the world just might stop spinning. If I don't accomplish everything I need to accomplish, the world might just stop spinning, and you're left laying on your bed late at night, racked with anxiety and worry and fear about how things are going to go, if the world's going to be okay, if your future's going to be all right, because you're leaning on yourself. But the reminder that you need to be reminded of is that you're not God. Those things were never under your control in the first place. Those things were never under your control. And I need to be reminded of this all the time. I get worried like, will my sermon make a difference in anyone's life? Will uh, Hannah and my daughter be okay driving around? Or will they be in danger? Will I have enough for, to send my kids to college in the future? I get worried about all of these different things. But the reminder that I need again and again and again is none of those things were ever under my control in the first place. God has the role of God well under control. And when he's in control, I don't have to be so prideful as to think I also have to be. God's, God's the one behind the driver's seat. I remember my, I've shared this story with you guys before, but my, my family grew up um, going skiing in Colorado in the winter times. So we'd ski in Breckenridge or Winter Park. And I remember my dad always used to make that drive, but for the first time a few years ago, I made that drive myself. And I remember as we were driving, I don't know if you've ever driven those roads, they're good and boring for a long time from here to like New Mexico. Very boring, very simple roads. But then eventually you get to the exciting roads, the roads that are like switchbacks through the mountains. And the problem with those roads is they only made them wide enough for like a Subaru, but not a Suburban. And it's like, there's the road, but then there's the ledge right over there with no guardrail. And what's over the ledge is 10,000 feet of like doom and certain death. And instead of making the roads of road material, they've made them out of ice. And that's how that's, so it's a terrifying drive. It's harrowing. You're driving and you're, I, I remember driving this road and actually being afraid. Am I about to be responsible for the icy death of all of my friends in this car with me? It was terrifying. Driving on this road was terrifying. But I remember when I finally got to my destination, I had a moment that I remembered when my dad used to make that drive. And I was sitting in the back seat. And what was my disposition? I was either asleep or 
gawking at the view out the window. Why? Because someone else was in the driver's seat. Someone else was in the driver's seat. My dad was driving that car, and I didn't have to worry about it getting to its destination. I didn't have to sit back there racked with anxiety. I could enjoy the ride because I wasn't even in the passenger seat. I was in the back seat, and my dad was in control of the car. And man, is that what we need to be reminded of too. When we are racked with anxiety, we so often need to remember, I'm not the one driving the car. And it'd be silly of me to even think I could drive this. God is the one who's in control. And in fact, when we start to feel anxious, what God desires more than anything is that we would cast those things on him because he can take it. He's strong enough. And in that way, it is a beautiful thing when we feel anxious because you know what that is? It's a signal flare shot in the sky signaling. It's not time to sit in the pit of anxiety and despair. It's time to pray. It's time to hit my knees because I know that God's in control of the universe. God is God and I don't have to be. So the question is, are you casting your anxieties on the Lord? Are there anxieties that you have walked in here burdened with that are weighing you down? Are there any anxieties that you need to cast on the Lord? That is actually what God desperately desires for you because he can handle them. I love the way that it described God's care in this previous verse. It said, humble yourselves under what? Under the mighty hand of God because God's hand is mighty. It's actually a reference to Exodus. In Exodus, what did God do? God brought his people out of slavery. Under the mighty hand of God, people were liberated, the slaves were freed, and what that shows is that when God's writing the story, when God's in control, nothing can stop him. His will will be done. His kingdom will come. His purposes will be accomplished. And when God's in control, we don't have to be. So there are any anxieties that you need to cast on him that you don't need to be carrying around. If we do that, if we do those two simple things, I really do believe that those are the steps that we need to take if we want to kill pride in our lives, if we desperately desire to have intimacy with God that roots out, roots out the sin and parasite pride that exists in our life. So I just want to close by asking, does that life sound nice to anyone? (laughs) A life that is rid of pride-fueled anxieties a life that is fully confident in God's providence and God's control, a life that is not so concerned about clawing your own way to the top or about your own glory, a life of humble acceptance of what God has for you, an eternity of hearing from the voice of the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me just remind you that that life is at hand. That life is at hand. If we clothe ourselves with anxiety, nope, that's not, that's not it. See, it was landing so well. If we clothe ourselves with humility, not anxiety, and we cast our anxieties on the Lord. We cast our anxieties on the Lord. So what I want to close by doing is just give you guys a few minutes to, to spend some time doing some work with the Lord. Praying, God, I, I confess right now that I am prone to pride. I am prone. I'm apt towards self-exaltation. And I need you to speak into the places in my heart where I'm prideful And help me to know how to replace pride with humility and to cast my anxieties on you. So for just a couple minutes, just go ahead and and spend some time asking the Lord these questions. Where does pride live in my heart? How can I clothe myself with with, uh, humility and what anxieties do I need to cast on you, Jesus? Take a couple of minutes, do that now, and then we're just going to close by singing 
more like Jesus, which is the perfect song to end with. So take a couple minutes and do that now. Yes, God, we do confess that we are self-exalting people. Pride is a parasite that lives within every single one of us and threatens our relationship with you and one another. And God, we just lament that. And we acknowledge that, God, we just desperately need your help. We need you to root out the sin that lives within us, uproot the weed that pride is, and in its place, allow humility to flourish. I just pray for every soul in this room right now. God, please allow every single one of us to to watch this week as pride bubbles to the surface and we're able to scoop it out and get it absolutely rid from our lives. God, I pray for a remarkable week of choosing to serve one another, to elevate one another over ourselves. God, we pray that you would be pleased with our actions this week as we respond to you. And God, we praise you that by humbling ourselves, we're able to obtain salvation. But if we just confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus, you died and rose again, then we can know you for all of eternity. So God, we pray with the gospel in our sights that you would help us now to become more like your son, Jesus. Peel away the things that are us and transform us into your image, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do the work that only you can do. Thank you for this morning. We pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.